Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. You saw on the title for this episode that I'm calling it a twofer. That's because we're going to do two R-words. The first is Ruth, the book of the Old Testament, and the second is Redeemer, which is a prominent word in the book and we'll talk about as, as we move forward. But first, a disclaimer. This episode is a little different, um, even as I'm sitting here recording it. Normally, I have two or three pages of notes uh, sitting on my desk to the left and uh, to the right, my Bible. This time, I've got my Bible to the left and a cup of coffee to the right. I don't have any notes. I have, sought, uh, I have thought about a good word to describe the book of Ruth, which I think stands apart from most of the other Maybe all of the other 39 books of the Old Testament. It really is unique. Um, I think, I, I think, I think, the proper word to use is idle, as in I-D-Y-L-L. It turns out you can spell it with one L or two. It means the same thing. But technically, it's supposed to have two. I-D-Y-L-L. Looked it up in the dictionary because I thought I was using it correctly. It is a word that describes a piece of literature or sometimes a, mu- a piece of music that is pastoral. Uh, it is um, not as in your pastor. It is pastoral in the sense that it, it is nature, like as in a pasture. It is calm. It is peaceful. It evokes feelings of a tranquil setting out in the country. I think the book of Ruth is an idol in that sense. Uh, so here's the deal. Normally when you have a story, a narrative, and, and this is a story in that sense, you have a protagonist, the white hat, the antagonist, the black hat, and then the conflict, the thing which brings them together opposed to each other. There is no conflict in this book. Ah, there is that little bit with the other a kinsman redeemer. We'll get to that in a bit, but that's only like four verses long. There's no, there's no bad guy in this book, and I don't think you can call him a bad guy. He makes at least what is for him a very, hey, listen, if all of this is going over your head because you don't know the book of Ruth, we're about to fix that. But what I'm trying to say is that unlike, I, th- I can't think of another narrative section in the Old Testament that doesn't have a white hat, a black hat, and some kind of conflict between them. Not because that's formulaic, but because it's just how life works, especially when we're in the realm of righteousness and unrighteousness. But there is no unrighteousness in the book of Ruth. There is no black hat. There really is no um, conflict between characters here. So that's why I came up with the word idol for this book. It is peaceful. It is uh, tranquil. It is pleasant in, in every sense. Here's another thing I decided. There are some books of the Bible that should be read with your brain, predominantly, with your brain. The book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, Maybe, uh, maybe this, certainly the second half of the book of Daniel, there's 12 chapters in Daniel. The second half of Daniel is certainly because it's prophetic about things to come in Israel's future. There are passages like that in the Bible, whole books, that should be read with your intellect. Ruth is a book, set your intellect aside. By that, I don't mean 
turn off your brain, but I mean, read this one with your heart. This is an idol. This is to be read with your gut, with your feelings, with your heart. This is a story about people who, as it turns out, love each other deeply, extremely deeply, and care about each other, and look out for each other, and, and, and. It is a wonderful... Um, so, so don't sit down with a notepad and take notes as you read Ruth. I'm going to give you some information that I think will help you understand when you read it, but... This is sit in an overstuffed chair with a cup of coffee, real coffee, black coffee that's hot, right? None of this iced nonsense with all sorts of stuff added. A good cup of black coffee, a comfortable chair, and the book of Ruth, and take your time and read this one with your stomach. Turn on your, your heart when you read this. As you read the words, don't just read words, look for... Um, feelings, look for emotions, look for reactions to stress and to blessing. And in each of, there are three characters in the book. Okay, there's that guy who plays a bit part, uh, if you want to make that a fourth. But there are three characters in this book, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And they will drop in and out of the narrative and two of them will interact. I don't think, uh, yeah, there isn't a point in which all three interact with each other at the same time. You get interactions between Ruth and Naomi and uh, Ruth and Boaz. And um, as you read these, feel the emotions of each of the individuals as they interact with each other and then as they think about uh, their responsibilities because there is some of that part to the narrative as well. Okay, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee and then we're going to dive in. As I said, we're doing uh, Ruth and Redeemer. That word Redeemer is a translation of the Hebrew word goel. Goel. Um, sometimes you see it written G-O-E-L, goel, with two dots over the E. And sometimes it's G-A-E-L. And it's pronounced something between an O and an A. Goel. And it is a Hebrew word that appears uh, frequently in the uh, Mosaic Law. I said I don't have notes. What I did as I was studying is write some references on the first page of the book of Ruth in my Bible. And I, I've got some space above that title, Ruth, and I've written them in there. And I'm going to read you what I've written. And, and this is the extent of my notes for this episode. Uh, regarding the word goel and the duties thereof, see, and then underneath that, I've written these references. Leviticus 25, 25, FF, Numbers 35, 19, FF, Deuteronomy 19, 4, FF, and Deuteronomy 25, 5, FF. Okay, <laughs> maybe you know what that abbreviation FF stands for. If you don't, I'll give it to you because it really is quite useful when you're, when you're jotting down notes like this. If I say... For example, uh, Leviticus 25, 5F. The word F stands for following. So it would be uh, verses 25, 5, and 6. And I could write 5-6 or 5-6. But it's, it's sort of traditional in the area of Bible study to write um, 25, 5F. And that means one. Two Fs means plural. It just pluralizes it. 
So it says Deuteronomy 25.5 FF means, and the verses, plural, following. It doesn't specify exactly where the end is because when you use FF as the abbreviation for following, what you're saying is you'll know when you get to the end. Just start reading at verse 5 and you'll figure out where that section ends. It's just kind of a handy abbreviation. So I'm going to, again, read that that, uh, heading sentence and then give you the references. I want to encourage you to write these down and then transfer them onto the first page of the book of Ruth in your Bible. Regarding the goel, and and in this case, I've spelled it G-O-E-L with the two dots over the E, which makes it long. Goel. Uh, Regarding the goel and the duties thereof, C, colon, and then underneath, Leviticus 25.25 FF, Numbers 35.19 FF, Deuteronomy uh, 19.4 FF, and 25.5 FF. You'll notice that each of those passages is from uh, the law, uh, from the Pentateuch, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In each of those passages, it describes the duties of the person who is the goel. The goel is a person. There are some, and, and, and if you go back and read these passages, you should do that before you read the book of Ruth. Hey, just go read these and then read the book of Ruth and it'll help you understand as you go along and it'll help you feel as you go along. The goel is a kinsman. He is a family member. And in fact, it is not one person. It is a list of persons. There is the nearest goel, then there are, uh, in descending order, those further removed. We talk about immediate family. I don't think we've got a non-immediate family, do we? I've never heard that. But anyhow, the number one goel is the person closest. So, for, and, and this is only in males, right? Not females. If a man dies, his brother is would be the nearest goel. What if he doesn't have a brother? Then it would pass to an uncle. Um, or and then down the line, a cousin. So there's this descending uh, list of goel. Goelim would be the, the Hebrew plural. It is a person, and there are several of them, and there is a nearest and then descending order. That's who it is. Now, what is it? Because he is a family member, he has responsibilities. Um, it, it, Israeli, uh, Jewish law uh, family is a big deal. You take care of your family. That's something we've lost uh, to a large extent, I think, in our American culture. You go to Latin America, you'll find out how important family is. Boy, don't mess with family. The goel is a family member who takes care of his family uh, and the nearest one. Now, there are several specific responsibilities that befall to the goel. One is that he is what is called the avenger of blood. Let's say that somebody murders my brother. They didn't have a police force in Old Testament Israel. They didn't have a sheriff's department. That was a duty that befell to the goel, the nearest goel. He was the avenger of blood. He was to avenge his murdered brother. That means he would go out and and make, a, I guess you'd call it today, a citizen's arrest on this guy and bring him before the authorities. It would be the priests uh, or, or the city uh, leaders, the city elders, 
and charge him and present evidence, and then when it came time to put the murderer to death, he was to cast the first stone. That was the avenger of blood, and that is done by the goel. The goel also had responsibilities should, um, and I'm using the example of the nearest, should his brother die, uh, his married brother die, then, and this is going to strike you as odd if you've never heard it before, the goel has an obligation to take his brother's wife as his own. And the first child born to his brother's, his now deceased brother's wife, is not his child. It is, it is considered by law to be his dead brother's child. That preserves his dead brother's inheritance. Here's the deal. When God took them into the promised land, he gave each of them He gave each tribe and each clan within a tribe a specific plot of land. That was theirs. God distributed the land first to the nation, then to the tribes, and then to the clans within the tribes. Then the tribe would distribute it uh, to individual members. So here's a guy that has a wife, no kids yet, and he dies in some kind of an accident or heart attack. It doesn't matter, but he dies. His brother takes the dead man's wife um, as his wife. There should be a son born, likely. There will be a son born to this, and this son inherits his dead, uh, what, father? We're going to call him his father. Inherits his estate. That preserves the the name of the man and the inheritance of that dead man in perpetuity in Israel. That was an obligation. That was not an option. Sometimes it was refused. And in fact, we're going to see an example of that in the book of Ruth. Those are the two main obligations of the goel in these uh, Old Testament, in these um, Levitical passages. They lay out the law in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you go read those, it'll give you some specifics about how all of that happens. I'm going to tell you one other a piece of information. I said we're going to read it with our hearts. One other piece of information, maybe two, that we'll come across that will help us get through the book. These are customs that appear odd to us, but I'm sure if they were here, some of the things that we do would appear very odd to them. They had ways of sealing a contract that seem very foreign. One of them, at this point in Israel's history, was for a person to take off his shoe, and one shoe, and give it to the other person. This was used in real estate transactions. It seems to be because the person's foot has tread on this property. And so by giving their shoe to the other person, they're saying, you get this piece of property. It's interesting that the book of uh, Ruth opens, in the days when the judges ruled, There was a famine in the land. Listen to that. In the days when the judges ruled, that puts this story in the past. It tells us where in the past. During the time of the book of Judges, if you know anything about the book of Judges, you know it was a horrible time. Israel had walked away from everything that the Mosaic law had taught them, and they were living in a a horrible, miserable society, doing all kinds of horrible things. If you begin reading it at chapter 1 of Judges, By the time you get to chapter 21, your stomach will be turned. And the last two or three chapters are absolutely the worst. 
Israel is sunken into idolatry and all of the horrible things that go along with Canaanite idolatry. However, in the days when the judges ruled, we get the book of Ruth. God always has a remnant, huh? And, and in that morass of evil is this incident of the book of Ruth. I'm sure there were others as well, but God in his sovereign grace has chosen to give us this particular idol to tell us one wonderful thing that was going on during this horrible time. And in fact, when we get to the incident involving the handing over of the shoe, it will do the same thing. It will say, this was the custom at that time. So there is some distance between the events of the book of Ruth and the writing of the book of Ruth, as these phrases indicate. Also, when it gets to the end, it's going to give us the genealogy of Boaz and Ruth, and it goes as far as David. So this couldn't have been written any sooner than David, who was Ruth and Boaz's great-grandson. So we're at least four generations down the line, maybe more. Uh, so there are, there are customs that come and go. Some of them seem odd to us. That one with the shoe may have seemed odd uh, to the writer in his time, which, like I said, was at least four generations later. A couple of things then that will help you understand this book and some of the details in it. The first is Goel, and the second is this custom of the shoe. Hey, maybe one more thing before we get into the book. That word Goel. Uh, I'm going to encourage you. I got out my, I used my um, four-colored pen and I used the red ink and underlined and or circled the word goel every time it occurs in the book of Ruth. It first shows up, let's see, in, uh, in chapter 2, verse 20. That's the first time it appears. Uh, there are cognates. There is the noun, uh, goel, uh, redeemer. There is the verb, uh, to redeem that'll occur. So anytime you come across one of those related words, redeem, redeemer, redemption, circle it, you're going to find that in the center of the book, not so much the first or fourth chapters, but in the center of the book, that is an absolutely critical word, important word that occurs eight times in two chapters and is the pivot point around which the narrative uh, moves. Now let's get into the book. It is four chapters long. It is like a play and, and like an idol, huh? A play that has four movements and each chapter is one movement. Each chapter stands alone in its setting and or its content. Chapter one sets the scene. Chapter two sort of builds the tension a little bit. Chapter three uh, is, is the... Uh, the apex, huh? If you were, there is no conflict, but but if you were to graph this, it would be like an upside down V. And chapter three is the climax of the story, and chapter four is the denouement, the, the part that kind of brings it all together and wraps it up and and ties the bow and leaves you feeling, ah, oh, shucks, that was a good story. As I said, the story starts in chapter one and it kind of sets the scene. It begins as a story about uh, Naomi and Elimelech, a husband and wife that were from this, the town. It wasn't a city, it was a town. We figure it was probably about 200 people, so really a village of 200 people uh, in Bethlehem. Afraid, it, it is called, uh, he is going to be called an Ephrathite, and that's di different from Ephraim, the tribe. This is Ephrata with a T-H, a T and a T-H, Ephrata. Uh, that is a district within the tribe of Judah. So the tribe of Judah, the district of Ephrata, 
and the village of Bethlehem. And that's where they were from, but there was a, a famine in the land. And so they left and went to Moab, which is a country to the east, small country, um, to the east across the Jordan River, east side of the Jordan River. And they went over there to live because there was no famine over there and they had to survive. And they had two sons, um, took the two young sons with them and went over there and uh, got established there. Now, keep in mind that because he's an Israelite, he would have left behind a, a, a plot of land that belonged to him because everybody had a plot of land. He would have left that behind, and they went there. And they had their, their two sons, Malon and Killian. The text tells us that Elimelech died. That leaves Naomi a widow. Her two sons get old enough that they marry. They marry women Orpah and Ruth. Then the two sons die. This is devastating for poor Naomi. She's lost all three of the men in her life. That is particularly problematic when you're a woman in that culture, especially if you're a woman living in a foreign country. She is stricken, and, and her, daughter-in-law, her daughters-in-law try to console her. She says, don't call me Naomi, a word which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. You may, may remember that word from the... Uh, Numbers narrative, the bitter waters at Mara means bitter because my husband and my sons have died and left me alone. That is not a diss to her two daughters-in-law. That is because she is now without a male to uh, provide for her and take care of her and protect her. She decides, she hears that the famine is done in Bethlehem in that area. So she decides to return and her daughters-in-law who who are devoted to her. Listen to that with your stomach. Her daughters-in-law who are devoted to her. That is so rare, isn't it? Um, are going to go with her. And she says, no, no, no. Turn around. I, I don't know how far they got, but she says, turn around and go back to Moab. You've got no future with me. Um, no Israelite is going to marry you. You're Gentiles. And if I were to get married and bear a son, would you wait long enough for those sons, plural, um, to become your husbands, go back to your father's house and uh, blessings on you and you'll find new husbands in Moab. And Orpah does. She goes back weeping and wailing. Don't don't dis, don't be upset with her. She did the normal thing, um, arguably the wise thing, which is why Naomi told her to do that. She is not deserting Naomi. She's doing what makes sense, precisely what her mother-in-law told her to do. Ruth, however, will not be dissuaded. Dear, dear Ruth, she says, uh, she says, your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. You got to read those words with your stomach, folks. You got to listen to those words and listen to the love and commitment. Uh, that Ruth has for her mother-in-law. By the way, the King James, uh, uh, we talked in our last episode about how the King James knows how to turn a phrase. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death um, parts me from you. That phrase, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, is a phrase that occurs just during this period of Israel's history. It's kind of interesting. If you do a concordance search for that phrase, you'll find that it was sort of uh, 
common, not slang, but you know what I mean? A common idiom during this short, relatively short period of time in Israel. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so. What a, that's kind of a great oath, isn't it? If, if you really want to emphasize that you're going to do something, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I... Yeah, there's a family story about that. I won't take time to tell you now. So that's the setting. Uh, uh, Ruth and Naomi arrive back, and everybody is surprised to see them. What's this about? Uh, look at look at who's come back. And that's when she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I return bitter. I left full, I return empty, and as a result, I am bitter. Don't think sinfully bitter, just think uh, a sad, sad widow, and now uh, mother, uh, childless. Okay, we'll stop at this point and uh, and finish out our narrative in uh, part two. <laughs>